Chapters one and two of Book three of Toilers of the Sea, Part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part three. Deruchette by Victor Hugo and translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book three. The Departure of the Cashmere. Chapter one. The Havlet near the church. When there is a crowd at Saint-Samson, St. Peter's Port is soon deserted. A point of curiosity at a given place is like an air-pump. News travels fast in small places. Going to see the funnel of the Durand under Mess Letiria's window had been, since sunrise, the business of the Guernsey folks. Every other event was eclipsed by this. The death of the Dean of Saint-Assaph was forgotten, together with the question of the Reverend Mr. Caldray, his sudden riches, and the departure of the Cashmere. The machinery of the Durand brought back from the Douvres rocks was the order of the day. People were incredulous. The shipwreck had appeared extraordinary. The salvage seemed impossible. Everybody hastened to assure himself of the truth by the help of his own eyes. Business of every kind was suspended. Long strings of townsfolk with their families, from the Vessin up to the Mess. Men and women, gentlemen, mothers with children, infants with dolls, were coming by every road or pathway to see the thing to be seen at the Brave, turning their backs upon St. Peter's Port. Many shops at St. Peter's Port were closed. In the commercial arcade there was an absolute stagnation in buying and selling. The Durande alone obtained attention. Not a single shopkeeper had had a hand-sell that morning, except a jeweller, who was surprised at having sold a wedding-ring to a sort of man who appeared in a great hurry, and who asked for the house of the dean. The shops which remained open were centres of gossip, where loiterers discussed the miraculous salvage. There was not a foot-passenger. At the Ivreuse, which is known in these days, nobody knows why, as Cambridge Park. No one was in the High Street, then called the Grande Rue, nor in Smith Street, known then only as the Rue des Forges. Nobody in Outville. The Esplanade itself was deserted. One might have guessed it to be Sunday. A visit from a royal personage to review the militia at the Encresse could not have emptied the town more completely. All this hubbub about a nobody like Gilliatt caused a great deal of shrugging of the shoulders among persons of grave and correct habits. The church of St. Peter's Port, with its three gable-ends placed side by side, its transept and its steeple, stands at the water's side, at the end of the harbour, and nearly on the landing-place itself, where it welcomes those who arrive, and gives the departing Godspeed. It represents the capital letter at the beginning of that long line which forms the front of the town towards the sea. It is both the parish church of St. Peter's Port and the chief place of the deanery of the whole island. Its officiating minister is the surrogate of the bishop, a clergyman in full orders. The harbour of St. Peter's Port, a very fine and large port at the present day, was, at that epoch, and even up to ten years ago, less considerable than the harbour of St. Samson. 
it was enclosed by two enormous thick walls beginning at the water's edge on both sides and curving till they almost joined again at the extremities where there stood a little white lighthouse under the lighthouse a narrow gullet bearing still the two rings of the chain with which it was the custom to bar the passage in ancient times formed the entrance for vessels the harbour of st peter's port might be well compared with the claws of a huge lobster opened a little way this kind of pincers took from the ocean a portion of the sea which it compelled to remain calm but during the easterly winds the waves rolled heavily against the narrow entrance the port was agitated and it was better not to enter this is what had happened with the cashmere that day which had accordingly anchored in the roads the vessels during the easterly winds preferred this course which besides saved them the port dues on these occasions the boatmen of the town a hardy race of mariners whom the new port has thrown out of employment came in their boats to fetch passengers at the landing-place or at stations on the shore and carried them with their luggage often in heavy seas but always without accident to the vessels about to sail the east wind blows off the shore and is very favourable for the passage to england the vessel at such times rolls but does not pitch when a vessel happened to be in the port everybody embarked from the quay when it was in the roads they took their choice and embarked from any point of the coast near the moorings the Arvlet was one of those creeks. This little harbour, which is the signification of the word, was near the town, but was so solitary that it seemed far off. This solitude was owing to the shelter of the high cliffs of Fort St. Georges, which overlooked this retired inlet. The Arvlet was accessible by several paths. The most direct was along the water's side. It had the advantage of leading to the town and to the church in five minutes' walk, and the disadvantage of being covered by the sea twice a day the other paths were more or less abrupt and led down to the creek through gaps in the steep rocks even in broad daylight it was dusk in the arvlet huge blocks overhanging it on all sides and thick bushes and brambles cast a sort of soft twilight upon the rocks and waves below nothing could be more peaceful than this spot in calm weather nothing more tumultuous during heavy seas there were ends of branches there which were always wet with the foam in the springtime the place was full of flowers of nests of perfumes of birds of butterflies and bees thanks to recent improvements this wild nook no longer exists fine straight lines have taken the place of these wild features masonry keys and little gardens have made their appearance earthwork has been the rage and taste has finally subdued the eccentricities of the cliff and the irregularities of the rocks below chapter two despair confronts despair it was a little before ten o'clock in the morning the crowd at st sampson according to all appearance was increasing the multitude feverish with curiosity was moving towards the north and the arvlet which is in the south was more deserted than ever notwithstanding this there was a boat there and a boatman in the boat was a travelling bag the boatman seemed to be waiting for some one the cashmere was visible at anchor in roads as she did not start till midday there was as yet no sign of moving aboard 
A passer-by who had listened from one of the ladder paths up the cliff overhead would have heard a murmur of words in the arflet, and if he had leaned over the overhanging cliff might have seen, at some distance from the boat, in a corner among the rocks and branches where the eye of the boatman could not reach them, a man and a woman. It was Cowdray and Derouchette these obscure nooks on the seashore the chosen places of lady bathers are not always so solitary as is believed persons are sometimes observed and heard there those who seek shelter and solitude in them may easily be followed through the thick bushes and thanks to the multiplicity and entanglement of the paths the granite and the shrubs which favour the stolen interview may also favour the witness Cowdray and Derouchette stood face to face, looking into each other's eyes, and holding each other by the hand. Derouchette was speaking, Cowdray was silent. A tear that had gathered upon his eyelash hung there, and did not fall. Grief and strong passion were imprinted in his calm, religious countenance. A painful resignation was there too, a resignation hostile to faith, though springing from it upon that face simply devout until then there was the commencement of a fatal expression he who had hitherto meditated only on doctrine had begun to meditate on fate an unhealthy meditation for a priest faith dissolves under its action nothing disturbs the religious mind more than that bending under the weight of the unknown life seems a perpetual succession of events to which man submits we never know from which direction the sudden blow will come misery and happiness enter or make their exit like unexpected guests their laws their orbit their principle of gravitation are beyond man's grasp virtue conducts not to happiness nor crime to retribution. Conscience has one logic, fate another, and neither coincide. Nothing is foreseen. We live confusedly, and from hand to mouth. Conscience is the straight line. Life is the whirlwind, which creates above man's head either black chaos or the blue sky. Fate does not practice the art of gradations. Her wheel turns sometimes so fast that we can scarcely distinguish the interval between one revolution and another, or the link between yesterday and today. Cowdray was a believer whose faith did not exclude reason, and whose priestly training did not shut him out from passion. Those religious systems which impose celibacy on the priesthood are not without reason for it. Nothing really destroys the individuality of the priest more than love. All sorts of clouds seem to darken Cowdray's soul. He looked too long into Derouchette's eyes. These two beings worshipped each other. There was in Cowdray's eyes the mute adoration of despair. Derouchette spoke. "'You must not leave me. I shall not have strength. I thought I could bid you farewell. I cannot. Why did you come yesterday? You should not have come if you were going so soon. I never spoke to you. I loved you, but knew it not. Only that day when Monsieur Herod read to us the story of Rebecca, and when your eyes met mine, my cheeks were like fire, and I thought only of how Rebecca's face must have burnt like mine. And yet, if anyone had told me yesterday that I loved you, I might have laughed at it. 
this is what is so terrible it has been like a treason i did not take heed i went to the church i saw you i thought everybody there was like myself i do not reproach you you did nothing to make me love you you did nothing but look at me it is not your fault if you look at people and yet that made me love you so much i did not even suspect it when you took up the book it was a flood of light when others took it it was but a book you raised your eyes sometimes you spoke of archangels oh you were my archangel what you said penetrated my thoughts at once before then i know not even whether i believed in god since i have known you i have learnt to pray i used to say to deuce dress me quickly lest i should be late at the service and i hastened to the church such it was with me to love some one i did not know the cause i said to myself how devout i am becoming it is from you that i learnt that i do not go to church for god's service it is true i went for your sake you spoke so well and when you raised your arms to heaven you seemed to hold my heart within your two white hands i was foolish but i did not know it shall i tell you your fault it was your coming to me in the garden it was your speaking to me if you had said nothing i should have known nothing if you had gone i should perhaps have been sad but now i should die since i know that i love you you cannot leave me of what are you thinking you do not seem to listen to me cowdray replied you heard what was said last night ah me what can i do against that they were silent for a moment cowdray continued there is but one duty left to me it is to depart a mind to die oh how i wish there was no sea but only sky it seems to me as if that would settle all and that our departure would be the same it was wrong to speak to me why did you speak to me do not go what will become of me i tell you i shall die <laughs> you will be far off when i shall be in my grave oh, my heart will break i am very wretched yet my uncle is not unkind it was the first time in her life that Deruchette had ever said my uncle until then she had always said my father cowdray stepped back and made a sign to the boatman Deruchette heard the sound of the boat hook among the shingle and the step of the man on the gunwale of the boat no no cried Deruchette it must be deruchette replied cowdray no never for the sake of an engine impossible did you see that horrible man last night you cannot abandon me thus you are wise you can find a means it is impossible that you bade me come here this morning with the idea of leaving me i have never done anything to deserve this you can have no reproach to make me is it by that vessel that you intended to sail i will not let you go you shall not leave me heaven does not open thus to close so soon i know you will remain besides it is not yet time oh how i love you and pressing closely to him she interlaced the fingers of each hand behind his neck as if partly to make a bond of her two arms for detaining him and partly with her joined hands to pray he moved away this gentle restraint while deruchette resisted as long as she could 
Déruchette sank upon a projection of the rock covered with ivy, lifting by an unconscious movement the sleeve of her dress up to the elbow and exhibiting her graceful arm. A pale, suffused light was in her eyes. The boat was approaching. Caudray held her head between his hands. He touched her hair with a sort of religious care, fixed his eyes upon her for some moments, then kissed her on the forehead fervently, and in an accent trembling with anguish, and in which might have been traced the uprooting of his soul, he uttered the word which has so often resounded in the depths of the human heart. Farewell! Derouchette burst into loud sobs. At this moment they heard a voice near them, which said solemnly and deliberately, "'Why should you not be man and wife?' Caudray raised his head. Déruchette looked up. Gilliatt stood before them. He had approached by a by-path. He was no longer the same man that he had appeared on the previous night. He had arranged his hair, shaved his beard, put on shoes and a white shirt, with a large collar turned over, sailor fashion. He wore a sailor's costume, but all was new. A gold ring was on his little finger. He seemed profoundly calm. His sunburnt skin had become pale. A hue of sickly bronze overspread it. They looked at him astonished. Though so changed, Déruchette recognized him. But the words which he had spoken were so far from what was passing in their minds at that moment, that they had left no distinct impression. Gilliatt spoke again. Why should she say farewell, be man and wife, and go together? Déruchette started. A trembling seized her from head to foot. Gilliatt continued. Miss Lethierry is a woman. She is of age. It depends only on herself. Her uncle is but her uncle. You love each other. Déruchette interrupted in a gentle voice, and asked, How came you here? Make yourselves one, repeated Gilliatt. Déruchette began to have a sense of the meaning of his words. She stammered out, M My poor uncle! If the marriage was yet to be, said Gilliatt, he would refuse. When it is over, he will consent. Besides, you are going to leave here. When you return, he will forgive. Gilliatt added, with a slight touch of bitterness, and then he is thinking of nothing just now but the rebuilding of his boat. This will occupy his mind during your absence. The Durande will console him. I cannot, said Déruchette, in a state of stupor, which was not without its gleam of joy. I must not leave him unhappy. It will be but for a short time, answered Gilliatt. Caudray and Déruchette had been, as it were, bewildered. They recovered themselves now. The meaning of Gilliatt's words became plainer as their surprise diminished. There was a slight cloud still before them, but their part was not to resist. We yield easily to those who come to save. Objections to a return into paradise are weak. There was something in the attitude of Déruchette, as she leaned imperceptibly upon her lover, which seemed to make common cause with Gilliatt's words, the enigma of the presence of this man, and of his utterances, which, in the mind of Déruchette in particular, produced various kinds of astonishment, was a thing apart. He said to them, "'Be man and wife!' 
This was clear. If there was responsibility, it was his. Déruchette had a confused feeling that, for many reasons, he had the right to decide upon her fate. Caudray murmured, as if plunged in thought. "'An uncle is not a father.' His resolution was corrupted by the sudden and happy turn in his ideas. The probable scruples of the clergyman melted and dissolved in his heart's love for Déruchette. Gilliatt's tone became abrupt and harsh and like the pulsations of fever. "'There must be no delay,' he said. "'You have time, but that is all. Come.' Cowdray observed him attentively and suddenly exclaimed, "'I recognize you. It was you who saved my life.' Gilliatt replied, "'I think not.' "'Yonder,' said Cowdray, "'at the extremity of the bonk. "'I do not know the place,' said Gilliatt. "'It was on the very day that I arrived here.' "'Let us lose no time,' interrupted Gilliatt. "'And if I am not deceived, you are the man whom we met last night.' "'Perhaps.' "'What is your name?' Gilliatt raised his voice. "'Boatman, wait there for us. We shall return soon. "'You asked me, Miss Lethierry, how I came to be here. "'The answer is very simple. I walked behind you. "'You are twenty-one. In this country, when persons are of age "'and depend only on themselves, they may be married immediately. "'Let us take the path along the waterside. "'It is passable. The tide will not rise here till noon. "'But lose no time. Come with me.' Déruchette and Cowdray seemed to consult each other by a glance. They were standing close together, motionless. They were intoxicated with joy. There are strange hesitations sometimes on the edge of the abyss of happiness. They understood, as it were, without understanding. "'His name is Gilliatt,' whispered Déruchette. Gilliatt interrupted them with a sort of tone of authority. "'What do you linger for?' he asked. "'I tell you to follow me.' "'Whither?' asked Cowdray. "'There!' And Gilliatt pointed with his finger towards the spire of the church. Gilliatt walked on before, and they followed him. His step was firm, but they walked unsteadily. As they approached the church, an expression dawned upon those two pure and beautiful countenances, which was soon to become a smile.' the approach to the church lighted them up in the hollow eyes of gilliatt there was the darkness of night the beholder might have imagined that he saw a spectre leading two souls to paradise cowdray and Déruchette scarcely took count of what had happened the interposition of this man was like the branch clutched at by the drowning they followed their guide with the docility of despair leaning on the first comer those who feel themselves near death easily accept the accident which seems to save Déruchette, more ignorant of life was more confident cowdray was thoughtful Déruchette was of age it was true the english formalities of marriage are simple especially in primitive parts where the clergyman has almost a discretionary power but would the dean consent to celebrate the marriage without even inquiring whether the uncle consented this was the question nevertheless they could learn in any case there would be but a delay but what was this man and if it was really he whom Lethierry the night before had declared should be his son-in-law, what could be the meaning of his actions? The very obstacle itself had become a providence. 
Caudray yielded, but his yielding was only the rapid and tacit assent of a man who feels himself saved from despair. The pathway was uneven, and sometimes wet and difficult to pass. Caudray, absorbed in thought, did not observe the occasional pools of water or the heaps of shingle, but from time to time Gilliatt turned and said to him, "'Take heed of those stones. Give her your hand.'" End of chapter 2 of book 3 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com